there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Out of the Twilight Zone that we'll be discussing tonight, Rod Sailing uses a device that's probably been around for hundreds of years, as long as man has built boats and sailed on the water, and that's the device of a ghost ship. But he also combines that with an idea of a personal hell or purgatory. And this is what he said about how he got that idea. I got it while listening to a sermon about the hereafter. I've never been able to stomach a concept of hell at least the Dante version. It struck me that purgatory can be given a modern dress, which is what happened in this show. But I find in doing this, sailing also poses a question to the audience in that by the end of the episode, you might sit and see how this played out and maybe think back about your own life and perhaps the actions you've taken. And it's got a great way of involving the audience because Once you've seen what happens to the main character in this episode, you might wonder if you end up in their shoes, what would your own personal hell be? So let's see how successful Rod Sailing is with this episode, Judgment Night. Her name is the SS Queen of Glasgow. Her registry, British. Gross tonnage, 5,000. Age, indeterminate. At this moment, she's one day out of Liverpool. Her destination, New York. Duly recorded on this ship's log is the sailing time, course to destination, weather conditions, temperature, longitude, and latitude. But what is never recorded in a log is the fear that washes over a deck like fog and ocean spray. Fear like the throbbing strokes of engine pistons, each like a heartbeat, parceling out every hour into breathless minutes of watching, waiting, and dreading. For the year is 1942 and this particular ship has lost its convoy. It travels alone like an aged, blind thing groping through the unfriendly dark, stalked by unseen periscopes of steel killers. Yes, the Queen of Glasgow is a frightened ship, and she carries with her a premonition of death. Again, written by Rod Sailing and directed by John Brahm, who also directed Time Enough at Last and I'm not sure whether I mentioned when we were talking about Time Enough at Last that he actually directed more episodes of The Twilight Zone than anyone else he directed 12 in total and it was first broadcast on the 4th of December 1959 Carl Lancer, he stands on the deck of a ship, leaning on the rail, looking out to sea and the thick fog and the darkness give the scene an instantly damp and oppressive atmosphere. It's, it's not a pleasant place to be at all. 
And as Lancer stands there, there's a very subtle moment of almost awakening, I suppose. He's kind of blankly looking out to sea, and then he straightens up and turns around, and it's almost as if he becomes aware of his surroundings for the first time. And at this point, one of the ship's crew tells him that dinner's served, and he'll need to come inside if he wants to eat. So let's just pause there for a moment. I think this is an instantly good-looking episode. The, the set of the ship is well realised and like I say the fog and the darkness give it a very oppressive atmosphere and the reason it looks so good is probably due to the fact that it's actually a film set it wasn't built specifically for this episode of the Twilight Zone it was actually from a film called The Wreck of the Mary Deer that starred Gary Cooper and Charlton Heston and that had just been completed so he goes into dinner and it looks like everyone is actually quite curious to see him. One of the guests invites him to sit down. He introduces himself and the others seated at the table and they all begin to question him. Not in the sense of an interrogation but just the usual getting to know you chat. You know, what do you do? Where do you come from? That sort of thing. Are you heading home Mr Lancer or away from home? Why I'm... Heading away from home. Um, what do you do, Lancer? Me? Well, I saw your name on the list. I tried to figure out what you looked like. It's a game I play. I try to connect a face with a name. I thought probably you were a, an old language professor from Oxford or something. And as they sit and talk, and Lancer tries to answer their questions, he isn't so much answering them in the usual sense it's as if he's discovering these responses for the first time too it's quite obvious already that he doesn't really know who he is now the captain of the ship the ss queen of glasgow comes down to dinner and it's here that we discover that this is wartime world war ii to be precise and the ship has actually broken away from its convoy they're alone in the water and one of the guests voices his concerns that they might be set upon by a wolf pack. So Sailing obviously did his research on this one because the wolf pack was a tactic that, that was devised to defeat the convoy system. British merchant boats would have a defence perimeter around the ship. So when German U-boats actually tried to attack this, when they were alone, they were, they were ineffectual. So what they did, they used to form a pack of U-boats the wolf pack and then when all the boats were in position they would do a, a massive organized attack that would just overwhelm the escorts in this instance the ss queen of glasgow has actually broken away from here from its convoy so so the fact that the ship is alone means that it isn't actually a target for a wolf pack but when the passenger does voice his concern about this Lancer, just out of nowhere, starts to bark these facts at him about German U-boats. I'd feel much safer if we were in convoy. I can almost see those wolf packs, isn't that what you call them? Yeah. Converging on us. There'd be no wolf packs converging on a single ship, Major Devereaux. The principle of the submarine pack is based on the convoy attack. The gentleman is quite correct. Our principal danger would lie in a single submarine. Lancer doesn't really seem to have much control over this, it's as if these buried memories are just coming to the surface and Lancer is as surprised by this as anyone. I'd rather they go after us with one of those pocket battleships. That you can see. Not a skulking, crummy tin fish a couple of miles underwater. If you're being followed, you'll see the sub, Mr. Potter. It will surface. 
They won't use all of their torpedoes on us, not when they can sit at a thousand yards and shell us with impunity and sink us at will. Oh, forgive me, Mr... Uh, oh, this is Mr. Lancer, Captain. Mr. Lancer, but you sound rather like a U-boat commander. So when the captain says this, Lancer drops his cup and when one of the crew members offers to clean him up, Lancer stands bolt upright and barks that it won't be necessary in this very stiff manner. Obviously very reminiscent of the images that we know about the Nazis in Nazi Germany. So there's this rather tense scene where Lancer keeps blurting out his life history. He's saying it because he can't remember who he is and he doesn't really comprehend fully just yet the... He probably shouldn't say these things in present company. But it's nicely played by Nemia Pearsoff, whose name I've probably just butchered, so I do apologise. He has this very kind of skittish manner, and he's just sitting there piecing this puzzle together. I was born in Frankfurt. Frankfurt? Frankfurt like in Germany? Yes, Germany. How long had you been in England? How long? Uh, not very long, and not long at all. Uh, please forgive me, I'm not feeling very well today. I think I'd better go to my cabin. Now at this point I have to assume that, that the audience knows what Lancer is. Maybe not the exact circumstances of how he got here, or what he did, or where he came from, but I have to think that even watching this fresh, people know already that Lancer is actually a Nazi. So that's where the tension comes from in the scene. Lancer's almost given himself away with every new thing that he remembers. And we as the viewer are in a kind of strange place because part of you is actually willing him to shut up, you know? You're sitting there on the edge of your seat saying, you know, be quiet. But then when you think about it, you think about actually who he is and I guess that's perhaps what Sailing's playing on because at this point Lancer is kind of an innocent, he is a blank slate, he's he's not really a monster. Even when he came into the room he sees a little girl dropping her doll and he bends down and picks it up for her. He's, he's not a monster, he's a man who's slowly starting to remember that he's a monster. So as the episode progresses we Learn that not only is Lancer remembering things, but he has a sense of deja vu about the people and the boat and the whole situation. It says that I have these crazy feelings. What? The feeling of doing things, saying things. The feeling that you've done them before? I know that feeling. I've had it occasionally. Being in a room somewhere and being able to swear that you've been there before. Even the conversational seems identical to another time. And the people? Yes, and the people too. How odd. I don't seem to recall. I don't seem to recall getting on this ship. Or anything else for that matter. And it's here that the biggest piece of the puzzle fits into place. I feel as if there's disaster out there. Doom. We're being stalked. I know we're being stalked. There's a sub out there, a U-boat. I know. I know it's there. I know it. 
So this is the general gist of the episode, the gradual piecing together of all these clues as to Lancer's identity. And in the background, this inevitable feeling that something's going to happen and this, this creeping dread. The captain becomes suspicious of Lancer, so he sends a steward to check his passport and the steward discovers a German submarine commander's hat in Lancer's cabin. And when Lancer looks inside the cap, it has his own name in it. Now later on in the bar of the ship, as Lancer sits drinking, he looks at the clock and this too triggers a memory. Five past twelve. One fifteen. Beg pardon, sir? 1.15. Something is going to happen at 1.15. Something is going to happen, sir. I don't know. I really don't know. Except... Except 1.15. It sticks in my mind. Tray for the bridge, please. Just being made up, sir. Be done in a minute. I'll wait. So now the ship's first officer comes into the bar to collect a tray for the bridge. And the officer is played by a young Patrick McNee, who is most famous for playing Steed in The Avengers. And it's this moment that apparently is the only time in that first season that sailing had to bow to censorship of any kind. Originally the first officer was to collect a tray of tea for the bridge. With it being an English ship, sailing considered that appropriate. But it turns out that one of the sponsors of the show was a coffee company that took exception to the mention of tea in the episode, so eventually it was changed to a tray for the bridge. Now Lance is sure, he knows that a submarine is going to attack at 1.15, and as he leaves the bar to try and abandon ship, a spotlight lands on him. That's the U-boat out there! The U-boat's here! During this panic, Lancer comes face to face with an assembled group of nine people. A couple of them are military people, but some are elderly. There are a couple of children in there too, you know, real innocents. And later on, when we get that final confirmation of who Lancer is and what he's done, we kind of realise why they're looking at him so accusingly. So as Lancer runs around what seems to be now a deserted ship, the light shines on him once more and we get the big reveal. When Lancer looks through a pair of binoculars, he sees that the commander of the submarine that's shining the light on him is himself. <laughs> There's an interesting little story from Nehemiah Pearsoff about this moment. He said, I was very busy working on that episode as there was much to do. My stand-in was from Germany. I had one phrase to say in German, für frei, fire at will. I asked my stand-in, Freddy, how to pronounce it and he told me. From the moment he instructed me on the proper pronunciation, he kept drilling me and testing me and correcting me. And naturally I grew tired of it, and I told him that it wasn't important to get it perfectly right. If it was close to right, it's okay. Freddy's feelings were hurt and he backed off. 
Yet he was much concerned, as if the whole show depended on my saying the phrase as if I was a high-class German commanding the ship. And then he goes on to say, As you may know, the director calls action. No one, and I do mean no one, calls cut, except for the director. We prepared to shoot the scene in which I call Für Frei. The director, John Brahm, who is also a German refugee, called action. And we played the scene and I called for a fry, at which point Freddy stepped on stage and called cut cut. This is not the way a cultured man would call for a fry. Now this is unheard of, first of all nobody but the director calls cut and certainly not a stand-in. Everybody was shocked, I winced and I thought poor Freddy just lost his job. At which point John Brahm, who knew Freddy was in the concentration camps, walked over to Freddy and in a gentle voice said, Freddy, I agree with you that ordinarily a captain of a ship will be from among the upper class Germans, but the captain Mr. Pearsoff is playing came up from the ranks. He came from a working class background. We went back to shooting the scene as if nothing happened. Back in the dressing room, Freddy apologized profusely. I assured him that I valued his loyalty, that I knew he wanted me to be good in the role, and could not contain himself. Freddy was in poor health and passed on several months later. So now that the ship is under fire, its crew seem to be back. I guess it's only fitting that Lancer should see the panic and the death that he caused. So Lancer jumps into the sea and we see a shot of a child's doll floating in the water with its owner sinking into the sea. Apparently it's a shot that Steven Spielberg homaged in Sugarland Express with a teddy bear. We don't see what happens to Lancer, but the attention shifts to the submarine. Some stock footage of a submarine going under the water and its crew doing their thing. Like I say, this is all stock footage and the shots of the submarine are fine. They look, you know, no problem at all. But I would question the inclusion of the film of the crew operating it because it looks like stock footage and it doesn't integrate very well. The the illusion of actually being at sea was working just fine up until then. But anyway, we, we go to Lancer's cabin in the submarine after the attack, and we see for the first time the real Kurt Lancer. And one of his crewmen comes in, a crewman by the name of Lieutenant Muller, played by James Franciscus. And I guess later in his career there is a sort of tenuous link back to the Twilight Zone. As we know, Rod Serling wrote the film Planet of the Apes, but... In the sequel that wasn't written by Rod Serling, James Franciscus plays a character called John Brent, who is a sort of stand-in, I guess, for the Charlton Heston character Taylor from the first film because Charlton Heston didn't really want to come back for the sequel. So a weak link, I suppose, but there you go. But in the scene, he's racked with guilt at the fact that they just destroyed a ship without warning a ship with women and children on it. And he actually plays the emotion of the scene very well. It's a small part, but it's a fairly sizable little speech. The only letdown is his German accent. It's non-existent for the first half of it and then pretty bad in the second half, but it's him who really lays things out for us. I just found it difficult to... To do what? To reconcile the killing of men and women without any warning. It makes me wonder if we're not damned now. <laughs> In the eyes of the British Admiralty, we most certainly are. 
I mean, sir, in the eyes of God. Oh, you're not only a fool, Lieutenant, but also a religious fool, and perhaps a mystic at that. Suppose we are damned, what will happen then? I've had dreams about it. Perhaps there is a special kind of hell for people like us. Perhaps to be damned is to have a fate like the people on that ship. To suffer as they suffer. And to die as they die. You are a mystic, Lieutenant. We'd ride the ghost of that ship every night. Every night, Herr Captain. For eternity. They could die only once. Just once. But we could die a hundred million times. We'd ride the ghost of that ship every night. Every night for eternity. And as those words echo in Lancer's ears, we go full circle and we're back on the SS Queen of Glasgow and we see Lancer again where we found him. I have a few quibbles with that scene. It's good to see Lancer as he really was, a man without remorse for having killed all those people and the mention of killing women and children doesn't alter that at all. So in that sense I think it's valuable because I do think we needed to see that. The speech from Lieutenant Muller does seem a little excessive though. I do wonder whether it was really necessary. I think we we kind of got what had happened without it. I think the whole thing would have been a bit more elegant without it. It just seems a little convenient, I suppose, that he comes in and says this and that's exactly what happens. Especially when Rod Sailing's closing narration confirms that Lancer is in his own personal hell now, for anyone who doesn't get that already. Apart from that minor gripe though, I do love this episode, I think it has a wonderful mythic quality to it. The concept of a ghost ship is something that really appeals to me. It's, you know, it's one of those things that exists in superstition and campfire stories and so on. A minister actually contacted Rod Sailing and asked for a copy of the text between Lancer and Muller at the end. And he said, the basic idea that each of us might have our judgment in the form of eternally facing what we have dished out to others was intriguing. And I would like to use your development of it as a springboard for a sermon sometime in the future. So obviously Rod Sailing sent him those words. Like I say, I, I really love the atmosphere of the episode, this, this sense of impending doom in this horribly cold and bleak sort of surroundings. It feels cold and damp when you watch it, and in that early scene when Lancer goes into the galley of the ship, it has a vibe about it that, without really stating it, these people are kind of hidden away. And as the clues about Lancer keep dropping, the sense of doom becomes just palpable. We touched earlier on how Lancer is kind of like a blank slate when the episode starts. He can't really remember anything. Later on in the episode, he genuinely tries to save people. And it's as if part of his punishment is that he should experience all of this as a good man. If he were the heartless Lancer that we would see at the end of the episode, he'd still fear for himself, but... But we see now he has compassion and he's not only fearing for himself but he's concerned for the crew as well. I think Namaya Pearsoff gives a good solid performance. He's equally believable as the 
amnesiac Lancer as he is the evil Nazi Lancer. Pearsoff apparently generally played ethnic villains because of how he looks obviously. He was actually born in Palestine, or as it's now known Israel, and Rod Serling himself was Jewish. And he actually came under fire once for an episode of Playhouse 90 that he wrote where Robert Redford played a Nazi who was actually depicted as quite a reasonable man apparently. So Serling doesn't shy away from showing the Nazis in this light because as well Lieutenant Muller he's a Nazi but he shows remorse and so on. I guess he's making that distinction between those who truly believed in the Nazi ideology and those who got swept along with it I suppose. So there are some interesting things going on here and I must admit it's a subject that I'm even hesitant about really delving into. I, I wouldn't want to diminish the horror of the atrocities that they committed and the suffering that people had to endure with comments that might unintentionally do that so I'll just put that out there for you to to mull that over yourselves but Douglas Brody does delve into it a little bit in the book Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone the 50th anniversary tribute so that's well worth a read so the twist is it a twist in this case I don't think it is and I don't think it was meant to be it's not so much about the audience discovering that Lancer is a Nazi than it is about him discovering what he is and we're just bearing witness to that. I would say it's obvious from the get-go. We, we might not know exactly the twists and the turns or the specific details but I think we know enough pretty much straight away what's really going on with this one. But strangely enough, Sailing didn't think this to be a particularly good episode. He said, Judgment Night in its original script form was a better than average flight of fantasy. Its filming left it so considerably less than that. There is an adaption of this story by a very prolific writer called Walter B. Gibson. He adapted some of the Twilight Zone episodes for two books called Rod Sailing's Twilight Zone and Rod Sailing's Twilight Zone Revisited. They were released in the 60s, I believe, but then they were also collected into one volume in 1983 called simply Rod Sailing's Twilight Zone. You can still pick that up fairly easily on Amazon and so on. I actually picked up my copy at the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror many years ago. The reason I mention it is because it's quite interesting that these adaptions are often a little different from the episodes. I have no idea why they are, but they are, and in the book, Carl Lancer is actually called Curtis Lancer, while in the episode, Pearsoff is quite heavy and stocky, in the book, the character of Lancer is tall and blonde, obviously Gibson was going for a more Aryan look. Now early on in the book we discover that Lancer is purposely staying out of people's way on the boat because he'll scare that they'll find out something about him. But then he realises that he doesn't really know anything about himself, so how can he give anything away? So that's when he goes to meet the other passengers. I guess the biggest difference is the ending, which I will talk about now. So if you're going to hunt the book down and find out for yourself, maybe it's best to skip on a couple of minutes. There is no reveal of Lancer seeing himself through the binoculars, taking aim at the SS Queen of Glasgow, but there is that switch when you see Lancer in the water starting to drown, and then it shifts to Lancer in the office talking to Muller. 
But the scene ends a little differently in that it turns out the Queen of Glasgow did get off a radio signal about her location and Lancer's U-boat actually gets destroyed and that's where he dies, which I think is a nice touch and, and really works well. But there is a little epilogue, a, a final twist I suppose. The main female of the story, Barbara Stanley, actually survives and later on in life she actually takes a trip on a boat to visit that site again out of respect for the dead. And the book says this, it said, Now as Barbara gazed, the misty curtain parted. Off in the swirl she saw the dreaded sight that had etched itself in her memory. There, as real as on that fatal night, was the battered hulk of the Queen of Glasgow, her bow nosing beneath the ocean's surface for the last long dive. And on the phantom freighter's deck, his hands waving a frantic gesture for the lifeboat to get away, was the man whose name Barbara now whispered, Curtis Lancer. The liner's lookout did not see the ghost ship from the past, even though it belonged to the present and to the future. But Barbara's glimpse through the misty curtain of time was promptly verified. As she turned from the liner's rail, she saw a muffled man standing there beside her, his eyes fixed on the closing fog. In a hushed tone, Barbara asked, you saw that ship out there? Yes, came the solemn reply. She was the Queen of Glasgow. And you saw the man who waved that warning from the rail? Yes, Curtis Lancer, the commander of the U-boat that shelled here. In all those intervening years, Barbara Stanley had half believed that there must be such an answer. Incredible though it might seem, it was the only way to account for Lancer's presence on the freighter and all the facts that he had known. Now, as Barbara studied the broad face of the solemn man beside her, she was suddenly inspired to ask, But how do you know all this about Kurt Lancer? Because I was his second in command. My name is Hans Muller, and as we watched from the conning tower, I somehow knew what Lancer's fate would be. Within an hour, our U-boat was sunk by depth bombs from a British destroyer. Kurt Lancer believed that he would perish like his victims only once. But time and again, I've stood at the rail of a ship like this and watched him go down with the Queen of Glasgow. The ghost of an unhappy man, Barbara spoke in a sad whisper, trapped forever on the ghost of an unfortunate ship. She was staring hard into the thickening fog, picturing the strange sight that had been unveiled there. Yes, Kurt Lancer was alone that night, as he was tonight. The fog had closed in again, but Barbara was still gazing into its impenetrable folds as she spoke again to the man beside her. But tell me, Mr. Muller, if your submarine was depth-bombed, how could there have been any survivors? How did you happen to be here? There was no reply. Barbara turned and stared with wide, amazed eyes. No one was standing there beside her. She was alone under the fog-blared lights that showed the broad, open stretch of the liner's sweeping deck. As in the dream, Barbara Stanley went back to her cabin. The SS Queen of Glasgow heading for New York, and the time is 1942. For one man, it is always 1942. Light in the salon! Let's black out down there! And this man will ride the ghost of that ship every night for eternity. This is what is meant by paying the fiddler. This is the comeuppance awaiting every man when the ledger of his life is opened 
and examined. The tally made and then the reward or the penalty paid. And in the case of Carl Lancer, former Capitan Leutnant, Navy of the Third Reich, this is the penalty. This is the justice meted out. This is judgment night in the twilight zone. So there we have it, Judgment Night, another hit for the season, I think. And I don't think it's actually missed yet. Perhaps the 16mm shrine for me is is a low point, but it's still, you know, it's still okay. But the great thing is the podcast is starting to generate a bit of discussion. I had an email from Mike, our good friend in Drexel Hill, over in the US there. And he's finally got his box set of The Twilight Zone Season 1, so he's playing catch-up with the podcast, which is great. I I love the idea of people watching along at home, you know. And he said, I liked your comments on Where Is Everybody, and I agree with them. I wondered, however, what you thought about the tone of the episode's ending. I find Mike Ferris seeming conviction that he's going to go to the moon jarring. He has, after all, just cracked under the extreme isolation that will be demanded of him during spaceflight. Granted, Ferris spends about five times longer than necessary in isolation, as it turns out, but I guess sailing didn't know for certain how long a round trip to the moon would take. Or perhaps Ferris' superiors were testing the upper limit of his ability to stay in isolation. Do you think Ferris still thinks he'll be going to the moon next time, or is perhaps speaking on behalf of humanity when he says, don't go away, see you next time. Perhaps it's more of a statement that we, that we will crack the barrier of loneliness in order to travel into space. But on the other hand, is that a barrier we really want to crack? The Twilight Zone seems to preach a pretty consistent anti-isolation gospel, so it's odd that the pilot episode presents one of humanity's greatest strengths, our need and capacity to connect to one another as a weakness i.e. the one thing keeping us from going to the moon. Interesting stuff, Mike. I think, personally, I don't think that Mike thinks that he's going to be the one to go to the moon. I think he realises at that point when he's being stretched out that he gave it his best shot and perhaps his efforts have maybe played a part in in humankind, maybe going one step closer, realising what they need to overcome to do it but it's that optimism I think it's that optimism that sailing had for people and their abilities to to overcome obstacles and so on that that's really coming through in Mike's words at that time you know I might not have made it but I think we're going to do it one day that kind of thing so good stuff Mike thanks for that much appreciated as always and the last episode that we discussed on the Twilight Zone podcast perchance to dream few comments on that on the twilightzonepodcast.com which is great our friend ben said the episode wasn't one of his favorites that it's perhaps a bit too intense in the circus scenes and maybe a bit dated in set design and so on and maybe a little bit predictable overall but that might be down to us now looking back at it rather than experiencing it at the time our friend Michael recollects that it's the first episode of the twilight zone that he remembered watching and the carnival scenes gave him nightmares and he still loves that cinematography to this day. And our friend Luke from Bodica Films, who we talked about a couple of episodes ago, he's the man behind the Twilight Zone-inspired show, The Collector's Room, that you can find at thecollectorsroom.co.uk. And he actually 
made a nice post about us recently uh, talking about the podcast and so on which we always appreciate so thank you Luke and he said that he really liked the story basis for the episode but he didn't really think it played out well enough but the twist at the end is a nice touch certainly a mixture of opinion I think perhaps one thing that I didn't quite bring across in that episode is that I wouldn't put it up with my favorite episodes either I think for me the main appeal of it is seeing a little bit of Twilight Zone history start to come into place you know Charles Beaumont was an important writer of the series like I said and and that's where the interest lies for me and the differences between him and Rod Serling so I do tend to agree with you guys that you know I wouldn't hold it up there as one of my my top episodes either but thanks for the discussion on the twilightzonepodcast.com it's good that it's starting to get moving over there and if anyone else wants to join in then you know where it is now it's becoming a very welcome surprise logging onto itunes every now and again and seeing that people have chosen to support the podcast with reviews and so on i always appreciate it and i always try and give it a mention when i can and I have a couple more stateside, which I'm very appreciative of. One by Jackson M. That was left on the 3rd of February, so thanks very much for that. Some great words there. And also one by a gentleman named Tim. Now, Tim was having a little trouble posting this review to iTunes, so he actually sent me the review. I don't usually read out the iTunes reviews because it seems a bit self-congratulatory to do so, but... Because you took the time to do this and you can't actually put it up on iTunes, then I'm going to read it out in the podcast because it's not only praising the podcast, but there's some good words from a fan's perspective about the Twilight Zone. So I'll read it out. Tim says, Every so often we all harken back to thoughts of a golden age, time or moments, memory in our nation's some experience. That is what I knew I was doing whenever I watched an episode of the Twilight Zone. Tom Elliott's Twilight Zone is for me a fond remembrance into an icon of my own version of my own golden age. As I grow older, I look back on my life with great longings for the rite of passage which all of us as humans experience. One dear memory space is reserved with great reverence for the television series phenomenon called the Twilight Zone. Thank you Tom for helping immortalise and spread the word of this great and visionary series but mostly for your calm, loving approach to each episode you cover in your podcast. I thoroughly enjoy your portrayal of this momentous experience for humankind. In whatever point you're trying to make, as a person, there is a lot to be said for calm, thoughtful dialogue. I find Tom's manner to be exactly appropriate. Subnote of appreciation. This podcast includes direct lines and audio spots from the original production, even taking into account the original studio ad which ends each Twilight Zone episode if played in its entirety. Signing off each episode, this completes the feeling. I'm someone who wildly appreciates a well-told story. These are such experiences. Thank you, Tom Elliott. Well, thank you, Tim. Much appreciated. And I have to give my apologies because in the last episode... I was trialing a couple of opening and closing pieces of music that would hopefully work a bit better and reduce a bit of uh, distortion that I was hearing on the track and the closing piece of music was missing out that, that little piece of the studio sign out so trust me it's going to be back this time round so I dedicate this one to you Tim, thank you. So that's about it everyone and next time we'll be discussing and when the sky was opened and as always 
if you want to contact me it's feedback at the twilight zone podcast.com i always try and stick to a more or less weekly schedule you know maybe a couple of days overlap here and there but there's a chance that the next episode might be a few days late because i got another project that i do need to finish up with quite a tight deadline so as always if you need your rod sailing fix chris over in the night gallery podcast is also hosted on the twilightzonepodcast.com and he's going from strength to strength over there so check him out and until next time bye bye <laughs>